0: didn't mean to come down with such authority there. Um, I promise that's not the tone of the sermon. Actually, um, in, in terms of the tone of the sermon, uh, my girlfriend Susan is sick this weekend, and I, she asked me for a two-minute summary of my sermon, so I gave it to her last night, and she was asleep by the end. So, the benchmark this morning, I'm going to be checking in in about two minutes and see if people are still awake, then I'll feel like I've done better than, than yesterday. Um but I've got some fun passages this morning, don't I? Retaliation and and Leviticus is always good stuff. But it hit me thinking, we're going to be talking about the heart of the law in retaliation this morning. And um I got my driver's license when I was seventeen and I'm currently twenty eight. Um my rough approximation I've driven around two hundred thousand miles if I add up all my cars and all my driving, uh which by the way means I'm almost to the moon. Um <laughs> And in all of those miles, I've never received a speeding ticket until last week when the city of Rock Hill deemed it necessary to pull me over on my way to class and give me a ticket for going 10 miles over the speed limit. Uh, And so this incident had me thinking about the law in in a negative way. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, we all tend to do that. Uh, For us as Americans, the Bill of Rights informs our understanding of what laws do and why they exist. Uh, the law restricts, but it also gives great liberty. Uh, The basic mindset that I've grown up with is that if it's not explicitly prohibited by the law, then I'm allowed to do it. That mindset, what it does, it has its effect on me over the years. It wears on me, and my mindset is uh, it encourages me to bend the law, to twist the law, to learn how to sidestep the law, uh, and if I can do that, then I'm okay. You know, we're, we're good, and that's That's how I view the law. So consequently, our legal system is always writing new legislation. It's uh, closing newly exposed loopholes, uh, and we're in this constant dance with our legislation uh, to see what we can get away with. Now, I don't intend to host a discussion on the merits of that type of legal system, um, but I bring it up because I think a lot of us import this view of the law to the Bible. When we read the Bible, we view that law the same way we view the American law. And... um, and I know that I'm guilty of this, and and people and churches that I love are guilty of this. And as we'll see this morning, people in Jesus' time were guilty of this. Uh, now, before we dig into the gospel passage, I'd like to go back to the psalm, which we read earlier. I think it's on page 8. Uh, and Now, if we read this carefully, we should find it to be somewhat puzzling. The view of the law that is given here is much different than how we might imagine it. But as I read through this list, and I would encourage you to really think about Uh, these statements, uh, and we've already read the passage, so I'm going to summarize here for you in two lists, the contents of the psalm. The law is referred to synonymously in different ways. He, He refers to it as statutes, law, commandments, testimonies, God's ways, his promise, his rules, and his precepts. Now that's surprising, but what's surprising here is how he responds to those laws. He says, I will keep it, I will observe it with my whole heart, I will delight in the law. Uh, It stands in opposition to selfish gain. Uh, To look at the law is to turn our eyes away from worthless things. Uh, The law puts us in in right standing with God, that he may be feared, and it gives us life. Now, is that typically how we think of law, as life-giving, God-fearing, you know, all this instilling? I mean, this is, um, we read this, I think, in a responsive sense because we're used to the Psalms. Sounding poetic, but we don't really think about what's being communicated there. Uh, and when I'm confronted with that, I have to change the way that I view God's law. So as we um, as we just keep that in mind, we're going to we're going to ask the question: How does the psalmist arrive at this perspective? Um, and I assure you, you know, I had I had no such feelings about the law after getting a speeding ticket. You know, I'm not delighting in the law or the, the concept of law. Uh, and even as someone who's grown up in an evangelical American church, I was kind of taught implicitly that the law is bad and Jesus saves us from the law. Um, but that's not what the Bible's saying. So let's jump to our gospel passage this morning. We're in Matthew 5. Uh, I'd encourage you to keep it out, or if you have your Bible, pull it open. It begins, it says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now we've seen this formula emerging in chapter 5 of Matthew, where he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. It's no less than six times that Jesus begins statements that way. And we've got the last two here this morning, two or three, two. Um, So what Jesus is doing, he's resetting commonly understood laws of the day, but each time he does, he digs deeper than the conventional wisdom or understanding of the law and gets to the heart of the law. So in this section, we see Jesus discussing the law for retaliation, which is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I think most of us have heard this idea before. We're all vaguely familiar. By the way, we're at the two-minute mark, or past the two-minute mark, and you're all still awake, so I'm feeling good about this. Um, But we've probably heard this idea before. Um, If not us, then and some of us, if not us feeling this way, then some people in our culture, we may see this teaching as being kind of archaic, primitive, or regressive. Um, I don't know if any of you feel that way. We know it's from the Bible, so we know we're not supposed to feel that way about it. Um, but actually at the time this law was instituted it was a very good law it was an improvement over what they had at the time and um, the main intent of this law was to protect people Uh, the basic idea here is that um, the punishment must fit the crime and not go in excess of it Um, it gave judges a clear formula for punishment and it forbids vendettas and excessive retribution so the object of this law was not to urge men to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and to assist upon, insist upon it at every possible opportunity. It was meant to avoid horrible excess uh, or spirit of revenge or demand for retribution. And it serves as a check uh, against that spirit and holds it in bounds. So uh, what you would sometimes have in, in ancient culture is uh, someone would, you know, instead of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, someone, maybe a lower class citizen, would commit a crime against an upper class citizen, and the, the court would rule unfairly in favor of the upper class citizen because he has higher stature, and sometimes would be met with death, you know, for a, you know, for a, you know, petty thievery or something like that. And so this law actually serves to protect people. Uh, now, as humans, we have this tendency to retaliate uh, in an escalating fashion. Uh, I'm sure you guys can think of a time in your own lives where someone has reacted disproportionately to you or you have reacted disproportionately to them um, and, and we don't really have to mine our lives very deeply to find things like that. I only need to go back to my childhood. If I, um, if I think of my brother or my friends and we we're playing basketball and one of us accidentally slaps the other one uh, you know while going for the ball or something like that you think well I was slapped so they need to get punched. Uh, I received an unintentional slap so they get a deliberate punch. And then the deliberate punch that they received, they're like, well, that wasn't fair. I accidentally slapped them, so now I get a harder punch. And um, that's what middle school is for guys. (laughs) I don't know. That's pretty much it. That's what I remember from those two or three years of life is, uh, you know, escalating retaliation. And uh, some of us take a little bit longer to grow out of it than others. Um, So this is where the idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is... uh, protecting, you know, a party. It stops this spiral of escalation. Um, And so it's a good law. And so what Jesus is correcting here, right, because Jesus says, you've heard it said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, which means he has some adjustment or improvement or clarification to make on it because you think that's a good law. What could be wrong with it? But so the Pharisees had had come up with a distortion of this law. The Pharisees and scribes, um, and they understood this law, as something to be insisted upon rather than something that should be restrained. So there's two serious errors in the Pharisees' interpretation here. The first is that they turn it from a negative injunction into a positive one. That is, the law was meant to defend someone from too harsh a punishment, but the Pharisees had been using this law and teaching with this rule as a way to look out for yourself and make sure that you get everything that you're entitled to. You see the difference there? And, And I, you know, once again... We don't want to be always too hard on the Pharisees because really that's kind of a human instinct, human impulse is, uh, you know, that law can serve me to get what I want when I want it, so I'm going to use it like that. The second error that they they committed is that this law was meant for judges, not for personal application. Uh, God has given us governments and authorities to handle justice in our land, and more importantly, God himself is the one who ultimately brings Justice. So every time we feel like we have to retaliate and take things into our own hands, we're not trusting the government and the authorities that God has put over us, and we're not trusting God himself to take care of those things. Um, So in this way, if we insist always on bringing our own justice, it can lead to a lack of trust in God. Uh, Now, it's important that you don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't believe this passage is a call for Christians to become extreme pacifists. If that were the case, then pacifism would be the new legalism, right? If you make anything too hard and fast a rule, then pacifism will be the new legalism. The law of God is the opposite of legalism, because its intent is to shape and transform our hearts. So what is being said here is that uh, we are not to be the kind of people that are so concerned with ourselves that we devote all of our time to looking out for our own interests to the point where we become consumed by it, right? That can we can easily spiral into that where every day, every minute of every day we're just constantly keeping a tally and a ledger of who's wronged us, who owes us what what I'm entitled to, what I can grab and um, you know that, that eats away at your heart and soul so Jesus, Jesus uses four illustrations here and each one of these really could warrant their own sermon but we have to go through them quickly um, for the sake of time he says, uh, the first one here, these are all familiar, so hopefully you know, you can find a good commentary study Bible. You can dig a little deeper if you want to, but the first one he says is to turn the other cheek. And this refers to defending your honor. To be slapped on the cheek is an affront to a person. But Jesus says you don't need to be overly concerned with this. After all, Jesus himself modeled this. Was he not humiliated and shamed and unfairly wronged uh, and physically abused? Um much more to the extent, I mean, if, if I get a simple slap in the cheek, yeah, that aggravates me, but what he had was much worse. So he modifies, or he model- he models this for us well. Uh, the second is if someone sues you, uh, Dan Doriani summarizes it this way. He said, stop fighting for honor, let others defraud you, and let God defend you. That's, that's as much detail as I'm going to dive into with that one. I think that's pretty straightforward, although it's not an easy rule, right? These are, these are simple to understand and very difficult to walk out Jesus' teaching. Uh, the third one here is to go to the second mile. And what he's telling about is we are to give more than what is required of us. The point is not to calculate exactly how much we must give at each point in time, but to have generous hearts that are prepared to give at any point in time. And we do this because God is generous and we conform ourselves to God and the image of God and the character of God. Uh, And then the fourth one here, give to the one who asks. Now, once again, there's a whole lot we could say about this passage. Uh, And Christians, if you're preaching on just this passage, you'll be very quick to add a lot of stipulations. Uh, And I would agree mostly with uh, the stipulations people would add, the obvious qualifiers. But the heart of the instruction here is that we're to foster a spirit of generosity. Uh, and Jesus is trying to do that in his followers. So, obviously, you know, you don't give until you have nothing left and you're out on the street. Um, all of those things, which you can find once again in a good study on your own. Uh, but we need to keep moving on. So, so, we move on to the next passage here where Jesus says, You have heard it said, right? So, this is his second one. You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so as we move into these final five verses here, we really get to the heart and the point of what Jesus is driving at. Uh, Here is his final, you have heard it said statement. Um, The teaching to love your neighbor is most definitely in the Old Testament. That's even in the passage from the the, uh, Leviticus passage this morning, which we're going to go to in just a second. I think that's on page 8. In your bulletins, you might want to turn over to that soon. Uh, However, Jesus says, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Hate your enemy is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. So how can this be if Jesus is referring to things that they've commonly heard, common teachings of the day, and he's saying something that's not in the Old Testament? Well, I think your, your basic laws of inference would lead you to believe that that's the, the Pharisees and the scribes are teaching that. They've extended the law in that direction. Uh, if they say love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy is their practical application of love your neighbor. Uh, and as we can see uh, in other parts of the Gospels, the problem here is how you define neighbor. Uh, the Pharisees understood that they were to love their neighbor, but to make that task a little bit easier, they just narrowed the definition of neighbor. Right? If, if God gives you a big command like that, you just narrow the criteria for it, and then it'll be a little more manageable. Um so, later in the Gospels, when Jesus is asked to defined, uh, define what a neighbor is, he responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is, I mean, who's your neighbor then? Anyone within reach. In fact, uh, if we look back at Leviticus, the passage which we're going to go to right now, we'll see that it provides a definition of neighbor. So, you know, it's not even revolutionary things Jesus is teaching here. He's getting us in touch with the heart of the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 9. He says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The passage keeps going and keeps going. But this passage should strike us as something more than an arbitrary command about agricultural practice. From God, right? Sometimes, man, when, I, when I've when i read through Leviticus in the past, sometimes I'm just like, this is all, I don't have a harvest, I don't have a vineyard, like, you know, I can skip over this section um, because I'm reading it too surface level. But when we get to the heart of what he's teaching here, the heart of the law is the heart of God. God tells his people not to harvest all of their crops because they are to leave them for the poor, the hungry, and the sojourner. So if God is telling his people to care for the poor and the sojourner, what does that make those people? By extension, the poor and the sojourner are to be treated as neighbors. Now, we might also note that God does not give a precise calculation. I think this is actually very important to note, because if I were writing this law, it would sound something like, you are to harvest 83.5% of your field and leave the rest for the poor. Right? Right? that's what I would do because that's easier to manage I can keep track of that but God doesn't do this because if a command like this becomes calculating then it loses the spirit of the command the command is to cultivate generosity from the heart and a care for the poor from the heart and that's why there's no precise numbers attached to this he's, he's saying be generous care for the poor the sojourner the sojourner how many times have you met the sojourner who's you know, walking past the end of your harvest probably never Right? But that's your neighbor, you care for them, you provide food for them, and you care for them. Uh, and so if we if we let ourselves think that righteousness is accomplished by certain deeds, then we will think that righteous. or if we, um, I ruined that sentence. If we let ourselves think that we've accomplished uh, righteousness by certain deeds, then we let ourselves think that righteousness flows from deeds rather than from the heart. And that's what Jesus is addressing all of the Sermon on the Mount. It's about getting to the heart of the law, revealing the heart of the law. And so if we flip back to Matthew here, we'll see how Jesus finishes out his section. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your enemy, uh, or love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what reason does he give for such a statement? And this is one where every time I'm reading the Bible and you see the word, so that, I underline it. Right? Because you're about to get an explanation that's really important, especially when you read the Gospel of Luke or in Matthew this morning, he says that we are to do this so that we are sons of our Father in heaven. Uh, And then he goes on to explain that God extends loving grace. Theologians refer to this sometimes as common grace to all people. Christians live under God's common grace and his saving grace, but all people on this earth receive common grace. God makes the sun rise on the poor and the rich. He gives rain to the just and the unjust. If God, who is perfect and holy, can extend grace to the evil and the unjust, then we who are not perfect ought to be able to do the same. Do you see the logic there? If, if God has not you know, been smiting down these evildoers, then that's not our job either. You know, that's ultimately, that falls on, job, on God. And when we try to do that, we're saying, God, I don't trust you to deal justly with this person, so I'm going to do it myself. But instead, we are to be children who imitate our Father. In short, Jesus' teaching is to correct misunderstandings of the law and get to the heart of the matter. And so this is the point this morning. If you only take away one thing, you take away this, that the law of God reveals the heart of God. Our interaction with that law reveals our hearts. If I use the, the law of God, which reflects the heart of God, to get what's mine, and what I think I deserve and what I'm entitled to, that that reveals the state of my heart. And if I use it as a means to foster generosity and care for the poor, then that reveals my heart in that way. A self-justifying heart, which is what is commonly portrayed by the Pharisees, will demonstrate its nature by the way it interacts with the law. In today's case, Jesus' teaching reveals whether you trust in God for retaliation or not. And once again, we're not being called to pacifism. There are times and places where we have to defend ourselves but our hearts should not be driven by self-preservation, esteem, retaliation, or any other selfish motive. And this is what a relationship with God frees us from, right? If we didn't have God to provide our retaliation, then you know, we might be justified in living that way. But once we trust in God that he is just and will ultimately bring about justice, then we can let these things go. We don't have to spend our time and energy fighting every little battle. And that's good news. Now, there's a very short story I'd like to share about um, Mother Teresa. I Now, I found it on the Internet, so it's probably true. But there's no way to know. It could be about, you know, Mother Teresa. It could be about Abraham Lincoln. I don't know. Um, I couldn't find a proper citation for it. But it sounds consistent with Mother Teresa's character. Uh, so as the story goes, she walked into a bakery and she asked for some st- from, for the baker for some stale bread uh, meanwhile she's holding a starving child in her arms so her motives are pretty clear you know she's not just trying to mooch free bread because that's how she gets her jollies she's holding a starving child the baker spat in her face and without even wiping the spit off her cheek or giving a cold look she said thank you for the gift now how about some bread for the child right but what this story shows us is that she is a woman who is not constantly keeping a tally of what she's owed or who has wronged her. She trusted in God for justice, and her heart was filled with far more important things, right? She didn't have to put the kid down and settle the score here, like eye for an eye. You, I'm, now I'm going to spit in your face, you know, in your bakery. Uh, her heart was free to focus on what really mattered because she trusted in God for justice, trusted in God for retaliation. She didn't dwell on how she was wrong and what she needed to do to balance the scale for herself. Instead, she was truly free by the law of God. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we just uh, thank you this morning for your word. Uh, We thank you for the way it challenges us, the way it it develops us, uh, and the way that it reveals us, that we get to know you through your word and through your law. Um, I just pray that you would give us... um, hearts and minds to receive uh, your word and that you would conform us to your image, that we would not be people who misuse your law or misread your law, but we would understand it and that it would change our lives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.